Bible reading today comes from Matthew chapter 7. Um, verses 21 to 29. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. When Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. We're in the uh, second year of Jesus' uh, public ministry. Uh, the first year, a year we call the year of inauguration, Jesus goes from being somebody who his friends, his family, his village think is a carpenter, a son of Mary and Joseph, um, to being uh, a prophet, um, a, a rabbi who has disciples. And as we come into the second year, Jesus is now drawing crowds in their thousands and they're coming from all over the countryside to listen to him. And why are they coming? Well, we've seen so far in this series, they're coming because Jesus can heal people and forgive people. He can meet their felt needs and their deepest spiritual needs. And he's coming last week, we saw, because he has a message not just for the religious elite, not just for the theologically educated but he cares for everyone. Uh, he cares for uh, the outcasts, for those who are on the margins. Jesus' message, Jesus' presence is to be present with everyone. Well, tonight we're going to jump to uh, Matthew's gospel. Both of those stories are in Luke's gospel, uh, but Matthew has a slightly different take on Jesus and his year of popularity. And Matthew's gospel is actually structured around five sermons. And the most famous of those, of course, is the first, the Sermon on the Mount. And that launches Jesus' public ministry in his year of popularity. And so we're going to go there today. And I've, I've got to tell you, I'm feeling a little bit 
incapable. I mean, we're dealing here with what I think is the greatest speech of all time. And uh, speeches are powerful things. And there are occasionally speeches that change the world. And you might look at the screen there and you might know one or two lines from one or two of those people. You know, uh, we will fight them on the beaches, uh, or I have a dream. Um, but the others, you might go, oh, maybe they made a you know. But the Sermon on the Mount has more references that have currency in Western culture than I want to suggest all of those speeches put together, right? Here's just a few. You might recognize, um, sorry, we're missing a slide. Um, you might recognize, uh, go the second mile, or the Lord's Prayer. Uh, that comes from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, or uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That also is from the Lord's Prayer. Um, sorry, from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, or uh, take the uh, log out of your own eye before you look at the speck in your brother's. Or don't judge. These are all quotes from just the one sermon, and they have uh, currency in our culture. They, they speak to us from across the centuries, and we hear some core truths when Jesus' words are repeated. But not only is this a sermon that has some great one-liners that cut through history, this is a political speech. And I want you to think about Martin Luther King and his um, I Have a Dream speech. And, and Martin Luther King, King is speaking to America. And he's saying, our country, our history has been founded on the wrong pillars. Pillars of slavery and oppression. And I have a dream about a different future. A future where the sons of former slaves and the sons of former slave owners will be able to eat together. A future where my daughters will be judged not on the color of their skin, but on the content of their character. And Jesus is doing something similar here. People are coming in their thousands and he's saying, we, the nation of Israel, have misunderstood God and his law. You have heard it said, but I want to say to you, it ought to be different. And I want to in, invite you to, a, to imagine a future where we are salt and light, uh, where we are a witness to the nations in ways that God always intended us to be, but we never have been. Let's fulfill our potential. Let's bring this kingdom in a powerful, tangible kind of way. And of course, Jesus has two alternative rivals in mind as he gives this speech. On the one hand, there is, you have heard it said. There are the teachers of the law and the Pharisees, and they have a particular take on what the kingdom is meant to look like. And Jesus is saying, they've got it wrong, don't follow them. But he's also giving this sermon on the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and you can look across the Sea of Galilee to what we call the Golan Heights now. And there's a Roman city over there. And it's one of the ten cities or the Decapolis. And it's a city that's got 
uh, massive fires that burn all night. And it's got a nightlife. And it's got a nightlife strip. And it's got um, baths. And it's got uh, a philosophy. And it's got um, a, a velodrome or a, an, an amphitheater where there's drama and there's speeches. And uh, it's got a shopping strip just kind of one off the main walkthrough, and it's got takeaway foods, and it's kind of like, this is the place where you live life. Rome is saying, you know, come, come buy into the Greco-Roman culture, and you will find happiness. And Jesus is saying, no, no, not that city over there. We are the city on a hill, and people will be able to see us and see God, and we will shine as we reflect his character. Can you see how this is a kind of a political speech about two rival would-be kings, Caesar and Jesus? And which kingdom are you going to seek? So, let's jump into this sermon. And Jesus begins with what we call the Beatitudes. Blessed are. Live this way and you will live under God's blessing. Blessed are the poor in spirit. And the poor in spirit may be financially poor, but they're not exclusively financially poor. Because Matthew, for instance, is a tax collector. He's not financially poor. But he's poor in spirit. He recognizes that he is sick. He's not self-righteous, uh, but he actually needs um, to turn to Jesus in order to find healing and hope. Blessed are those who mourn, who lament, not over their own sinfulness alone, but over the national sinfulness of Israel and their inability to pursue God, but rather they desire to be like the nations. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart, the peacemakers. And if you live this way, in some sense, you'll be blessed by God. But in another sense, be conscious that you will be persecuted because of righteousness. This life will invite disdain and contempt and even persecution from others around you, from both sides of the fence. Sorry, can we jump back one slide? We're missing, we went forward too, I think. So what do uh, the blessed receive? Well, uh, they receive the kingdom. Uh, they receive, um, uh, I need a Bible. My slides aren't working properly. Thank you. And he's, he's following along at the right place. Thank, thanks, Jamie. I'm probably also going to need glasses, but anyway. Um, they will receive the kingdom of heaven. They will be comforted. They will inherit the earth. Um, they will be filled, they will be shown mercy, they will see God, they will be called children of God. Uh, so there are blessings just heaped upon the people who live this way. Now, that creates a certain dilemma, right? Because um, Jesus then says, if you live this way, you will be salt and light, right? You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salt again? You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Uh, let your light shine before others. So the Jews who are listening to Jesus 
This is what they'll be hearing. They'll be going, hang on a sec. He's talking about Isaiah. He's talking about the Old Testament, where the nation of Israel is called to be a light to the other nations. And now he's saying that if we live meek and merciful and peacemaking lives, then we'll be a light to the nations. But he hasn't talked about the law. Jesus hasn't said, well, uh, don't steal, don't murder, don't lie, and then you'll be like, what does Jesus think about the law? And so in the third part of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, well, I haven't come to abolish the law. I haven't come uh, to, to do away with the law. No, I've come to fulfill the law. Every pen stroke he's come to fulfill. And this is true not only for Jesus, right? But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And our righteousness actually has to surpass that of the Pharisees. So what Jesus is saying is, if you live um, the life of the Beatitudes, if you live with the, the values of uh, meekness and mildness and forgiveness and uh, you're poor in spirit and you're concerned for others and you're a peacemaker, then that will be something that fulfills the law and is a light to the nations. And you guys have to do that in spades. So, let me see if we can pull this together. Uh, this is the Sermon on the Mount so far. You're blessed if you live this way. You'll be a light to the nations. And this is fulfilling the law. Well, Jesus goes on from there. Let's see if we got it right now. Uh, and he talks more about actually how we obey the law. And there's this phrase here. You have heard that it was said. This is what the teachers of the law and the Pharisees are saying, right? But I tell you... Now, that's a radical statement. Jamie talked about this uh, in the year of opposition. Uh, sorry, in the year of inauguration. That Jesus doesn't just get to read the text and then say, oh, Gamaliel says this about the text. No, he actually interprets and reapplies the text. He has an authority. And... and Jesus goes through many of the commandments and he says, look, they say don't murder. I say don't even get angry. They say don't commit adultery. I say go further, don't even lust. They say you can divorce under all sorts of circumstances. I say don't ever divorce except perhaps for marital unfaithfulness. They say, oh, well, you can break this oath, but not that oath. I say, let your yes be yes and your no be no. Be a person of your word. They say, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I say, hey, if somebody asks for your shirt, give them your jacket as well. If somebody says, go with me one mile, go with them too. Go above and beyond what people are even asking. That's the kind of justice we ought to be seeing. They say... Love your neighbor, hate your enemies. I say, love your enemies and pray for them. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, you don't just obey the letter of the law. There's a spirit, there's an intent, there's a heart of the law, which says you ought to have a concern for the wellness of your brother and sister, that you go above and beyond in caring and living for them. That's what the law was always about. That's how you obey it. Now, 
you might be getting confused and we say, hang on a sec, are we supposed to live this way or this way? You know, is it the Beatitudes or is it this new interpretation of the law? The answer is they're the same thing. The Beatitudes are the underlying values or attitudes that you have and if you live them out, they will express themselves as the ways we will fulfill the law. So how do you be somebody who doesn't get angry? Well, you probably need to be meek. You need to be not too caught up in your own self-importance and getting angry about injustices, usually to me. And you also need to be somebody who's a peacemaker. Uh, and how do you not look with lust? Or how are you faithful to your spouse? Or how do you keep your word? And the answer is, you've kind of got to have the values of the Beatitudes. So these two are kind of connected to each other. So what Jesus is saying here is, I'm not doing away with the law, Actually, I'm here to fulfill the law. And if you want to be great in the kingdom, you also need to fulfill the essence of what the law was always about. And Jesus sums it up like this near the end of the sermon. So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. This sums up the law and the prophets. Loving God, loving your neighbor and your sister is about what the law was always on about. Do that. Well, then Jesus talks about how we obey the law. Because the Jews loved certain parts of the law, the ceremonial parts, the parts that you could see on the outside, that you could look and go, oh, look at them, they're doing this and they're doing that, right? And Jesus has something to say about that. He says, and when you pray or when you give or when you fast, don't be like the hypocrites. Right? Don't do it out in public so that everybody can see you and you can kind of big note yourself and people can go, wow, isn't he impressive? Isn't she spiritual? Isn't she generous? Right? No, no, no. Do it in private. Go and pray in your room. Give in such a way that your left hand doesn't know what your right hand is doing. When you fast, cover, cover it up with makeup. Don't accentuate it, um, but, but be... Uh, under, um, under big noting yourself. Um, and then your father, this phrase is repeated for prayer, giving and fasting, your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So when you obey the law, don't do it in such a way that brings attention to yourself, but do it in secret and then... God sees and God will reward you. And you will be storing up treasures in heaven. Often we might jump into the Sermon on the Mount and come to this passage and go, oh, how do you store up treasures in heaven? And the answer is, we've just been told. You store up treasures in heaven by living in such a way that it's not about me and people thinking better of you, but it's actually about caring for others. You're going to pray for others. You're going to give to others. You're going to fast and focus on God rather than on your felt needs. Um, uh, and when you're doing that and not looking for the attention or the affirmation of others, then you're storing up treasures in heaven. And that's a great thing to do. That, that's a secure place. Because there's no stealing or destroying from that vault. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy. Thieves can't break in. And I love the order of this. 
for where your treasure is, there your heart will be. The things that you give your time to, the things that you invest in, your heart follows and that becomes your greatest passion. That is the opposite of what our culture currently says. Our culture now says, you've got some internal passions that are core to who you are. Get in touch with those and then find some practices that are outworking of your inner passions. And Jesus is saying, the flip. Do some things and your heart will follow that which you are choosing to invest in. Your heart will catch up and it will align itself with your practices. So, uh, you get the flow of the sermon. We're going to be salt and light by obeying the law and we're going to do that in a secretive way, um, not a self-aggrandizing way. Why? Because we're storing up treasures in heaven. Now, this is an honor-shame culture, right? Where the greatest currency is perhaps money in the bank, and then after money in the bank, what others think about you. And now you're supposed to be not thinking about what others think of you, but only doing things in secret so God can see. So that creates a problem. My goodness. Uh, if it's not about my security and my social standing, I'm, I'm at risk here. And, and Jesus anticipates this and says, oh, don't, don't worry. Don't worry about your life or what you'll eat or what you'll drink or your body or what you'll wear or... Don't worry about what other people think of you or how you need other people to like you, to provide for you. or Just, just live for my kingdom and, and don't, don't worry. And in fact, um, there's another risk. Because if you're living for God who's in heaven, then yes, you might worry, but you might also make comparative judgments. Right? It might be kind of like, well... All right, so I'm storing up treasures in heaven, and, and he's not storing up treasures in heaven. He's out there making a big deal of the fact that he's being generous. And boy, um, isn't my spirituality more godly than his or hers? And, and Jesus also warns us against that mistake. He says, like, you know, when you're focusing on, on how you live and what you do, um, don't judge others. Just be concerned about what you can change in yourself and leave others to be concerned about the speck or the plank that might be in their eye. That is a comment for Jews about how their fellow Jews are going to look on them. What follows, and I haven't got it on the screen, is a comment about what the Gentiles might think of you. And Jesus says, don't throw your pearls before the swine. In some sense, when you live for God, other people will say, well, I don't get that. That's a stupid life. That doesn't make any sense. And, and trying to convince them is like taking precious pearls and giving them to pigs who are only going to trample on them and then turn on you and devour you, Jesus says. So there's two, three risks, right? You might worry if you're living for God. You might uh, start judging other people. Or you might be overly concerned about what others think of you and spend your whole time trying to convince them that this is a, an appropriate, wise choice. Don't go down any of those paths. Instead, ask, seek, and knock. 
Ask God to provide. Seek the kingdom first. Don't worry about all this other stuff and all those other people and what they think, right? Just seek the kingdom first and everything else will fall into place. Knock on doors. Like, like pursue the kingdom and the opportunities and the possibilities and just push and push and see what happens and ask God to open doors and make that your focus. That's how we're going to live. So let me pull that together. Um, we're going to live for God, storing up treasures in heaven, not conscious of what others think, not worrying, um, not making comparisons. Uh, instead, we're going to focus on how we live for Jesus and put his kingdom first. Now Jesus does something that's common in first century speeches. And he says this. He says, okay, here's what happens if you live for me and here's what happens if you don't. Let's consider the alternative. Enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few will find it. If you follow me, if you seek the kingdom first, it's a road that leads to life. But it's a lonely road. It's not the road most will choose. Not most fellow Israelites and not most Gentiles. And there will come a time where you will think to yourself, my goodness, I'm kind of isolated here. I'm out on a limb. And, and uh, psychologists tell us that we feel much safer and more confident about our decisions when like-minded people are around us. We feel safer. And Jesus is saying, well, that safety is very deceiving and dangerous because you're on a wide road with lots of people and where's that road going? It's going to destruction. So safety in numbers is a, is a scary precedent. Don't invest in that. Just trust God. Don't worry. Live for him even though it might feel like a small gate and a narrow road and one where not many people are with you. Oops. Something happened there. All right. Can you guys fix that up the back and I'll open the Bible again? All right. So uh, we're in chapter 7 now. Um, and Jesus says, it's going to be challenging not only will you be isolated if you walk on the narrow path, there will also be false prophets who will invite you to walk on the broad path. Watch out for false prophets. They will come to you in sheep's clothing. They'll look like sheep. They won't look like goats. They won't look like wolves. We often think, ah, oh, you know, the, the most dangerous voices out there are, you know, Amazon.com or certain websites or, um, you know, the, um, certain politicians who are inviting us and tempting us to live in certain... Jesus says the false prophets may well be inside the church. They may well be inside the people of God. They will be dressed in sheep's clothing, but they're still dangerous 
ferocious wolves. So how will you know a good teacher from a false teacher? And the answer is not, oh, we're going to check out their doctrine, although Paul does say some things like that elsewhere. The answer in the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus gives is by their behaviour, by their fruit, by the way they live. Because a good tree bears good fruit and a bad tree bears bad fruit. Not only are there true and false prophets, there's actually true and false disciples. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Who will? Is it the people who've got their theology right? Is it the people who've prayed the prayer? The one who does the will of my Father in heaven. Isn't that a, a, a fascinating response? I'm not saying my other suggestions aren't also true. But the emphasis of Jesus is this. It's the one who does my will. And for the people who um, think they're true disciples but aren't, Jesus says, away from me, I never knew you. So, there we have it. That's kind of the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And we're getting near the end of my sermon too. Um, but I, I don't know if you've seen this. I, I've never tried to preach on the whole sermon before and I've never heard anybody else try either. Maybe I should have noted that. Um, but, but, but there's a certain logic to the Sermon on the Mount, right? It, it kind of hangs together as one sermon. Right? And so where Jesus has gone in the end part is live for the kingdom. Uh, if you don't live for the kingdom, lots of other people are going another way, but it's a path for destruction. Um, and there will be false prophets and there will even be false disciples inside the church who will persuade you and who will model for you what it looks like to sort of pretend you're a sheep, but actually you're not really. So, Jesus pulls it together with the illustration we had at the start. Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. How do you build a house on firm foundations? It's by putting into practice Jesus' teachings. We call that here core habits. That will sustain you, whatever the circumstances, right? That's how you build your house on a rock. And when the rains come, and they will, rain, storm, wind will smash against your house and will test the quality of your little castle that you've built for yourself. And will it survive? Will it protect you? When life throws at you what it will, that all depends whether or not you've listened to Jesus and you're putting into practice his words. Let me offer a few comments about uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, it's a very practical sermon, isn't it? It's all about the person who does this, the person who displays this fruit, the person who puts these words... In. It's incredibly practical. Think about what isn't there. Jesus hasn't mentioned the cross. He hasn't mentioned grace. He hasn't mentioned um, the word, the gospel. He hasn't kind of said, 
by the way, I know for about the next 400 years you're going to have a debate about the Trinity. That's going to be terrible. Let me just get that straight for you. And then I know for about 800 years you're going to lose the sense of the fact that we're saved by grace. Can we get that one straight as well? I'm not saying those are all untrue. But the predominant themes of the Sermon on the Mount are seeking a kingdom and living with Jesus as your king and not aligning yourself under rival kingdoms. And I find that quite an arresting thought. There's a focus to the Sermon on the Mount that is a little different to the focus of Protestant evangelical spirituality in the 21st century. And I think there's a message for us coming out of COVID. How do we rebuild our lives? And the answer is, listen to Jesus and put his words into practice. That's how you're going to rebuild on solid foundations. And secondly, that's not just an individual call. It's not just, I build my house and you build your house and we've all got our own little castles, right? Because this is a political invitation to Jesus to invite the nation of Israel to once again be the people of God. And so, this is a journey where I'm not just being a light in my small corner and you in yours. That's enlightenment nonsense, right? That's not how this song goes, despite the one we learned in Sunday school. The song of the Sermon on the Mount is that we are going to be the people of God who seek first his kingdom. And when we live that way as a nation, and Jesus commences that with 12, 12 disciples to reconstitute Israel, then we will be a city on a hill, not just an individual in a small corner. And so we need each other. So as we come out of COVID, we are hearing the words of Jesus and putting them into practice corporately in caring for one another, being the people of God, out, sharing Jesus in a lost and broken world, up, worshipping, sitting under God's word, praying, making these our core practices. That what it's, that's what it means for us to be the people of God. And so here's my question for you. Are you seeking Jesus' kingdom? And are you trusting that everything else falls into place when you put the king and the kingdom first? Let's pray for us. Jesus, we're just feeling overawed to have heard and sat under your sermon the greatest sermon of history, the greatest speech of history. And it just cuts through not only history, but it cuts through lies and it cuts through nonsense. 
and it gives us a sense of who we are and how it is that we are to inhabit your world. And we just want to repent for when we have not lived as you have called us to live. And we want to once again recommit ourselves to being Jesus, your people. You're our king. We're seeking your kingdom. We're putting your words into practice. We're storing up treasures in a place where they are safe, where they are secure, even though we're mindful that others might think that we're foolish. And we're going on this journey as your people, bringing glory to you, shining to the world around us. Empower us by your spirit to be that people for your glory. Amen.